2: and welcome to Book off a literary podcast with a difference. I'm Joe Haddow, and it's my pleasure to welcome to the studio today two brilliant writers with a wealth of knowledge and experience between them both. former editor of Thames News to an international best-selling author, Bernard Corwall, welcome to you. Thank you, Joe. And former leader of The Lib Dems, a politician, diplomat and author as well, Paddy Ashdown. hello to you. Nice to be with you. Wonderful to have you both here. Uh, you've mm. been sort of running in and out of each other's schedules today, I think.: Yeah,
3: we've bumped into each other three times already, I said to him, <laughs> start talking about <laughs> (laughs) But at least so
4: far we've been interviewed about our own books. I once sat down in a (laughs) studio like this and somebody came on from the line live from from Edinburgh and began to ask me about my book and then I realised that she thought I was someone entirely different.
3: I, I, was go- I know that that feeling very well. I was going through Waterloo Station the other day. A little man came up to me and said, here, he said, here, yeah, didn't you used to be Paddy Ashtown?
2: <laughs> I love that quote, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, it's great to have you both here, as I said, and uh, we're going to talk about your mm-hmm. brand-new books, which are both out now. And uh, Bernard, you're, you're an Essex boy by... London. I am,
4: yes. I was born in London but raised in Essex. And
2: is it nice to be back? Because you spend most of your time in America now.
4: Well, I live in America now and, uh, yeah, it's always nice to come back. I mean, Judy and I come back every a couple of times a year. It's always It's always good to be back.
2: And how are the boats?
4: The boats are wonderful. Good. I, I hauled <laughs> I hauled the sailboat out yesterday, which is very sad. It means the end of the season. But by the time I get back, it's get, you know the weather will be pretty nasty up in Cape so, Cod. Hmm. So you're on the west coast, east coast. We're on the east coast in Cape Cod. Oh, and, oh very nice. Uh, we cool. sail in Nantucket Sound, and it's quite wonderful. Uh, wonderful.
3: I bet it is. Chesapeake Bay. I always wanted to sail sail in Chesapeake Bay. You I? a sailor, Paddy? Well, you know, I, I, I spent a rather large portion of my life as a young soldier in the Special Boat Service, but that was uh, we would we not be not allowed to use sail power. We had to we had to do it with, we had to do it with paddles in the I middle know, of the with night. With the
4: defence cuts, you may be
3: <laughs> yes, absolutely. Well, yes, uh, although. Um, we were able to have navies then, but we also thought it was good to go around in canoes. But it's not quite the same thing, paddling around in a place you shouldn't really be in the middle of the night. Never mind, there we go. So would you call that sailing? I think I've probably had enough of the sea for the moment.
2: Bernard, I could have, I said there at the beginning, you know, international best and all that, I could also add actor to your credits now because of this uh, a cameo that you're making uh, in the Netflix series which i just read about of the last kingdom could you tell us a little bit about that
4: well yeah they they asked me if i wanted to appear in a cameo and i spent an hour and a half in makeup and had hair extensions and looked absolutely dreadful <laughs> it was sort of like going back to the 60s and and, and then they murdered me <laughs> um, so it was actually it was thoroughly enjoyable. But in fact, I spend my summers on stage in a summer stock theater in Massachusetts. And this year, I played Jaques in As You Like It and Geronte and Scapino. And uh, every summer, I. Um, Read the board
2: Do you? I didn't know that. Yeah, I didn't know that. Oh, oh, well. So when we were quoting Shakespeare earlier mm-hmm. for our mic test, that's, that's been fresh on your mind, then? <laughs> it was fresh on my mind. I was delivering it night after <laughs> night, yes.
3: I, I, I only appeared twice uh, in the school play. And once I was a wordless monk in the ascent of F6, and I did so well that the next time they gave me a soldier in Macbeth, who had one line, which was, I can remember, i never forget it, sound the alarums without, that is the
4: extent of my. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but then you were in Parliament for a long time. So.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. We well, just didn't read across, but there you go. <laughs> is there a Shakespeare character you'd want to play if you could? Oh, I think Falstaff. He must have been Ooh. such fun. I'd love to have been Falstaff. And you, Bernard?
4: I played Prospero two years ago, and I don't think I'll ever have a better part. Oh, I can see you as Prospero. (laughs) And the costume was to (laughs) die for.
3: (laughs) Inside, I have to tell you, there's a Henley V trying to get out,
2: but I managed to. Not sure it's it's going to make it. Um, Let's talk about your latest books, if we may, because um, they've both been published now. And Bernard, if we talk about War of the Wolf first, this is your 11th novel in the Last Kingdom series, I believe. Yes, it is. Um, and uh, follows, you, you thought about that then, <laughs> follows on from some pretty explosive events in The Flame Bearer. So could you just tell us a little bit about the story continuation here?
4: Well, the, the, uh, look, a lot of historical novels have a big story and a little story. I mean, the big story in Gone with the Wind is the Civil War. The little story is Can Scarlet Save Tara? And what you do is you flip them. You put the little story in the foreground. Well, the big story of these books is The Making of England. Because I've always found it odd that, that we English, you know, we listen to Vera Lynn singing There'll Always Be in England. And we assume there always was an England. Well, there wasn't. If you'd been born in the year 900 and someone said England to you, you'd look at them as though they were mad. You didn't know what it meant. But 40 years later, it existed. And it's existed ever since. And I think that story of how our country came into being is worth telling and is worth knowing. Um, but my job is not to be an historian, it's to be a storyteller. So the little story is the story of my hero Utred who's in the foreground and often behaves quite badly. <laughs>
3: yes, Do you think indeed. France always existed? Do you think they had to invent France as well? I sort of think France was always there. No, but I don't write France. tragedies.
4: <laughs> 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 Good.
3: But, but it's a fair point. I mean, it's true of Britain, what you describe. It's true of Germany up to Bismarck. It's true of Italy up to mm-hmm. Garibaldi. So probably most nations started as sort of inchoate collections of states that were made by heroes, or first made by heroes. But France, you're not sure? I just don't think so. I mean, sort of Charles... Charlemagne seems to have been there always, really, wasn't he? And, yeah, and, yeah. and, and I, I sort of can't imagine—I just can't imagine bits of France without France. I, I no, hang on. No, but of course, there was Burgundy and the king, wasn't there? That's so right, yeah, it yeah. was divided in two for a
4: bit. Yeah. Well, and Gascony was separate for a long time. Gascony, to... I mean, when when Normandy. No, you're right. Okay, this. I'm being proved <laughs> wrong.
3: I want to get off this. I'm hoisting the white flag <laughs> at this stage <laughs> immediately. I t- besides, well, that was only the case when it was owned. Bit, bits of it were owned by
2: England, so that was all mm. right. I don't. Well, should we get on to Germany then? Because that's more your area, Paddy, especially Mm. with this new book, Nine, that you've just published, which is based on newly released
3: files. It's not actually, but the story's always been there. By the way, Ben and I are completely different. I I can't make up stories. Mm. I can tell stories if they're given to me. So that's what makes me a historian, I suppose, if I could... Um, credit myself with such an elegant title. So I, I write histories, they're properly sourced, um, and they're usually about this central question that I've always fast, been fascinated by is how do people behave in war? How do they decide whether to be a traitor or a, or a, or a, or a hero? And this is this par excellence. So briefly... After the war, because we occupied Germany, broke it up, still a lot of its industry, brought it back to Britain um, and uh, divided it in three and dismembered it. It was not congenial ever to believe that in the terrible dark days of Hitler there'd ever been good Germans. And so we invented a complete calumny to suit ourselves, which is there was a German resistance, but it only occurred after Hitler was already evident he was going to be defeated. And so this book, which I came across in ways that we can talk about in a second, just by pulling a little thread that unveiled this story, actually was well known after the war. But it was known in bits and pieces, and nobody ever published it because we didn't want to believe there'd been such a good thing, thing as good Germans. And in Germany, they didn't want to believe there had been people right at the top of Hitler's regime who had betrayed him. It's about a collection of people who supported him when he came to power, spotted his deep evil in 1936, decided they would do everything to undermine him from the very top, I mean the head of the German intelligence, tried to warn us the war was going to happen in September 1938, mounted a coup to get rid of him, which would have succeeded, I have no doubt, but that was pushed to one side when Chamberlain came up with Munich, Um, and then tied not just on the 20th of July in von Stauffenberg, but probably eight to ten times I've identified, to kill him in various plots, and most of them using British plastic explosive and a British time pencil. At the same time, tried to pass his secrets to us. They passed the secrets of when we were going, he was going to invade France to us, including the fact he was going, we were going to come through the Ardennes. Uh, and we ignored them all, did the same thing through a Russian spy ring, which they took over with the help of MI6 in Geneva, and passed the Russians the plans for Barbarossa, the Stalingrad, the Great Battle of Kursk. And so, um, and by the way, in the same time, drew up plans for a united Europe in 1942, five years before Monet and Schumann, a new constitution for Germany. And then after von Stauffenberg is discovered on the 20th of July, they are all terribly killed. People of immense moral courage, not flawless but immense moral courage, who, inside Hitler's regime, at the very top, followed this double life, tried to help us win and to ensure that he lost, and they have been completely forgotten. Except for one man, who we do know about, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the great um, theologian, who was a member of the Abwehr, part of the group that did this, killed, hung with um, at Plotzensee Prison, celebrated memorialised three months after the end of the war and a full um, church congregation in the Trinity Church off the Brompton Road, heavily excoriated by several British newspapers, not excluding, I suppose, the Daily Mail, for daring to celebrate the life of a German. Um, And then today is one of the ten modern martyrs uh, whose statues stand above the West Door in Westminster Abbey celebrating this extraordinary nobleman. So this is a story that's been hidden, which alter, ought to alter our view. It's part of the history of the Second World War and gives us an indication that even in the most terrible times, people of supreme moral courage, not flawless, but supreme moral courage will still fight against great evil.
2: Gosh, wow. I mean, it's there's just so much to go out there, isn't there? And mm. I suppose I want i want to learn a bit about how you came to it and why you wanted oh, well, to explore it. Well,
3: there you it. are, you see. <laughs> I, I really envy... Bernard because I think his stories come from within his mind and he's able to create them. I once tried to write a novel it's not really a novel, it was a thriller based on a bit of my past life and my, my agent looked me in the eye and said, Patty you can't do this stick, <laughs> stick to history where you're given the story so I've written my last book, this one's my tenth you know, my ninth book just been produced I'm sitting in London City Airport, twiddling my thumbs, looking through a website. I find a website saying British spies. Oh, well, that's interesting. So I go on it. discover, slightly to my surprise, that I'm one of them. I'm mislisted on the website. I had to, at this stage, I had to eat the person who wrote the website. <laughs> but also, there was a British spy called Helena Szymanska, and she was a Polish lady who the head of the German intelligence found in the middle of the carnage in Poland, took to Berlin to save her and her children took in a sealed train over the border into Switzerland where she was safe and installed in a house in Bern, not three-quarters of a mile from the British legation, knowing perfectly well that she'd become a Polish spy and then a British spy, and she is indeed recruited by MI6. And he then visits her in Bern, disguised and under false paper. This is the head of the German intelligence, and uses her as a direct link to the head of MI6, along which corridor he passes all this information. And I thought, heavens, that's an interesting story. And the moment I pulled on the thread, I discovered this whole great plot that begins in 1936, um, warns us specifically that Hitler's going to take Sudetenland, sets up a plot to... Kill him, actually, that day, which is supported by all the German generals in Berlin in 1938, supported by the head of the police in Berlin in 1938, the head of the Abwehr, the German intelligence, the foreign office, and then uh, up pops Chamberlain, has Munich, and we give Sudetenland away to Hitler without firing a shot and then continues right through the war. And um, so this extraordinary story that isn't quite hidden, but it's just been forgotten, really, mm. um, for 50 years, yeah. about the alternative version or piece of complementary information about the history of the Second World War.
2: Well, let's ask, Bernard, then where the stories do come from, then. You found a little thread there and you pulled out yeah, it. clever.
4: They're in his head. <laughs> and <then> he doesn't <laughs> have to do that. <laughs> well, they're he?
2: not entirely in my head. Um,
4: <clears throat> I'd always been fascinated by Anglo-Saxon England and fascinated by, by the story of how England began. But then when I was in my late 50s, I met my real father for the first time. I'd carelessly lost him. <laughs> and uh, he was living in British Columbia. Uh, but he came from a family that is in New York, still in New Yorkshire. They're called the Outred family. And once I got to know him, he showed me the family tree. And the family tree goes all the way back to Ida the Flame Bearer in, in the 7th century. But they had been the lords of Bebenburg, which is now Bamborough Castle. And it just so happened I knew Bamborough quite well and, and loved it. And, and we'd twice taken um holidays in Bamborough, renting a little cottage there, because we loved the area so much. I mean. And I thought this is very odd, because I knew that it was a Danish kingdom, Northumbria. And yet this family of a Saxon family or Angle family had managed to hold on to their land. And I thought, how the hell did that happen? Uh, now, almost certainly it's because they they cooperated. But I thought there's a story there, so that story began really for me discovering that I had an ancestor who'd been alive in Northumberland. Isn't your
3: hero called Uhtred as well? Mm? Isn't your hero called? Yeah, Utrecht? he's called
4: Uhtred. Uhtred, and and the name somehow simply transmuted into Outrid. and and the family is still there. They lost Wambar um, in 1016 through treachery, and I met the present owner, who's a most charming man, um, I don't know, a few years ago, and I said to him, look. This, this this castle was stolen from us, uh, and if you had a shred of decency, uh, he said, "Just hang on a minute." He said, "Let me show you the heating bills." I said, "It's okay. <laughs> it's okay. The castle is yours. Hold on to it." I'll leave it. Yes, <laughs> but but uh, um, wanting to tell the story of the making of England is, is obviously very ambitious. But you need a vehicle, and the vehicle is my this ancestor who existed. But I mean, everything I say about him, I make up. I mean, he's impossibly heroic.
3: But isn't that interesting? The story lies in the counterintuitive piece of information that, you know, here was a Saxon family that survived.
4: Yes, that survived.
3: And right? for me, the story survives exactly the same way. Here's the strange thing of a group of people who survived against Hitler in the background. And that's where the story lies, the counterintuitive the story. that contains this.
2: Ready to pop the question?
1: So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on LinkedIn.com slash achieve today.
2: I know it's an obvious thing to say, but it's it's so wonderful that you're both evidently just just so passionate about history and you're both very mm. fond of it. I can see, you know, when you're talking about that and the... The need to learn to look back and to find things out, and that's obviously inf- that 's influenced both your careers and your writing, I would say
3: I think it was Churchill who said that no politician should be allowed anywhere near power unless they 'd studied history and by the way, I think almost none, perhaps with the exception of boris but he 's an exception for everything, um, has studied and at present they don 't read book. they don 't never mean history they don 't read books they 've never had a job except a politician. Um, And so he's right, and and, uh, by the way, shining through the book that I've written is the extraordinary and horrifying parallels between 1930s and our present age. All those things were there then, um, the retreat from internationalism to nationalism, the retreat to protectionism, the sense democracy had failed the hunger for the government of strong men, complete distrust in the establishment and the systems of government, the prevalence of a lie in the public discourse. But Goebbels once said, you know, if, if you want to tell a lie, tell it big and tell it often. You know, put it on the side of a bus perhaps and drive it round the country. Um, very, very much. Now, that isn't to say there's a Hitler around. There isn't one today, though you might say that... The, circumstances are conducive to one appearing. And secondly, you know, our democratic structures are much stronger than the old Weimar Republic. But the nature of the age was horribly like our own.
2: And does politics inform historical fiction, Bernard, even though you're writing about a long time ago, are you also thinking about People the politics draw of parables. today?
4: I mean, simply because uh, the Saxons are immigrants. Mm. Um, and and they mm. are gradually making a kingdom which takes in Danes and Norsemen, and and I get a lot of comments from people saying you're you're actually trying to write something about today's Britain, which is not true. I'm really not. I mean, I think that the, the truth is is that things don't change. I mean, as Paddy just said, I mean, in the 1930s, uh, you can read them into today, and plainly some of what I'm writing about does ring a bell because people tell me it does. Uh, although it's certainly not part of my Purpose at all. And as I haven't lived in England for 40 years, I don't really feel qualified to
2: mm. um, express a view. How is it looking at the UK from afar over there in America? We've got our own problems.
4: <laughs> and <laughs> trust me, we do. And he hasn't read any books either, and he never no, he will. I
2: mean, this is a frightening. Thing.
4: Um, and, uh, By
3: the way, uh, we... here's a thought for Bernard, just drawing the panel that Hitler, the first support for Hitler, came from the dispossessed working populations after the Depression in the Ruhrgebiet, the Ruhr Valley. And these guys stuck with him thick and thin right the way through until Berlin was a smoking ruin. And if you look at Trump, his support comes from the Rust Belt of America, and it doesn't matter what he does. They still continue to support him. 80% of the Republican base is with him. And so in many ways... Somebody said to me in the State Department the other day when I was in Washington. I said, "Are you going to impeach him?" I said, "No, that would just be seen to be a conspiracy of the deep state. We have to let the American Constitution do its work and restrain his dangers and let him destroy himself." And in the end, I think that's right. By the way, it's a horribly pessimistic view, but I think it's right.
4: Well, the consolation is, is that the, that nightmare must end at the latest in twenty twenty four. Well, unless the lie, he gets a lie second on the side term. of the bus goes on much longer.
3: Well, it does, but you know, what if uh, the answer is? If Trump sticks with one term because the American Constitution, they said it's like the, the antibodies gathering around him, like Bush too, and preventing him from doing too much. But if he then gets a second term, the damage he'll do to the Western Alliance, to the future of America by altering the nature of the Supreme Court could be horrific and
2: very long term,
3: unfortunately. Mm. But and, we're getting off the topic.
2: And you, well, yes, we are, but it's a, it's a topic worth discussing. And this, this idea of MPs, politicians, not, not reading. And do you mean reading history or do you, do you mean just reading? Mostly
3: they don't read at all. Yeah. I mean, mostly. There are some exceptions. Boris is clearly one. He's a very good writer, um, although mad in many other ways. Um, <laughs> Nick Clegg reads a lot and writes very well, but they are the minority. I don't think David Cameron ever read a book, and I rather doubt Mrs. May has either. And certainly, you know, Corbyn would have read some, but I would think they would have been connected with, you know, sort of uh, the older styles of socialism. Um,
4: Manifestos.
3: Ma- that kind yes. of thing. Yes. No, I mean, uh,
4: novels. I mean,
3: you think of you think of Disraeli. You think of the great writers who were also politicians. Here's a thought for you. I don't think you should ever give a politician power if the only thing they can do or ever have done is politics. I think it's useful and safe for politicians to have another life that, distracts them away from that and a different view of the world.
2: I would agree with that. I'll vote for you. I'll vote for you and then we can run the country. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, as as you know gents, we... we, um, Have the book off at the end of the podcast where each of you come to tell us about a book that you think we should read. Mm. A book that you love uh, or a book that you think is important. And that's no exception here. And you've each got three minutes to talk to us about said book or books. Um, So let me just find out what you have brought. Bernard, what's your choice for the book off?
4: My choice is Will in the World by Stephen Greenblatt which is, I suppose you mm. might call it an attempted biography of Shakespeare, but it's certainly a meditation on Shakespeare. Right, okay.
2: A so theme, we're, a we're theme both, is, uh, is coming. We're both
4: theme.
3: in the 16th and 17th century. And where are you then, Pat? I am just about the turn of the 16th century. I'm with the um, complete works of John Donne. Mm. Um, as a young soldier fighting in the little funny little war we fought in Borneo in the 1960s, My wife gave me a copy of, a leather-bound copy of the poems of John Donne, which I carried with me everywhere until a termite set it. (laughs) I I absolutely adore poetry. I fell in love with it by accident when I was 16. And of all the poets I've ever heard of or ever known or ever read, John Donne seems to me the greatest. Not not just as a poet, by the way, as a great man in many ways conflicted, um, but a great philosopher, moral philosopher as well.
2: Paddy, you get to choose whether you go first or second. I think I go second. Can and you give Ber- me the choice? Absolutely. And Bernard, you get to choose whether you get honked or you get rung out when your time comes up. Honked. You're going to be honked. Okay.
3: Which means I'm I'm rung out. Is that You're right? You're going to be rung.
2: Yes. <laughs> yes. So you don't have to use your 3 minutes if you don't want it, but it will go quickly, it always does. Um and when we hit 3 minutes, uh, Bernard, you will be Royally honked. So, <laughs> I'll start the clock, and it's over to you to pitch and tell us about Will in the World by Stephen Greenblatt. Well,
4: it's an amazing thing that William Shakespeare, still after four centuries, is still bestrides the world of the theatre like a colossus. And we'd like to know a lot more about him. I mean, we actually do know quite a lot, but the problem is that much of what we do know makes him sound like a most unpleasant, grasping businessman. We have his law cases where he sued for money that was owed him. Uh, we have the, the fact that he was sued for not paying his taxes. In other words, we have a lot of a lot of material that doesn't make him sound very nice. None of it explains how this man wrote so many masterpieces, some of the greatest poetry, in all of our history and the greatest plays ever. What Stephen Greenblatt does, he doesn't try and fill in the gaps. He knows there are gaps. Instead, he tries to recreate Shakespeare's world. He's done an immense amount of research. This is where he lived. This is what he saw. This is who he met. This is what he heard. These are the plays he might have seen. There's a wonderful moment in the book where he just imagines that perhaps... Shakespeare, when he first came to London, went to see Tamerlane, the play by Christopher Marlowe, and he, through his head would have gone, I'm no longer in Stratford. I'm seeing the best professional theatre. And in many ways, the book is also about the birth of the professional theatre in London. The very first playhouse was built in 1574. Within ten years, Shakespeare is there. Within another ten, He's absolutely ruling that world, he and Ben Johnson. And the book is quite brilliant about Shakespeare's world, and when you come out of the book, at the end of the book, you have a great, much greater understanding of who Shakespeare was, why he wrote, and indeed why he wrote so brilliantly. And I haven't used my three minutes.
2: No, you haven't. But I'm ending there. That's wow! No, you haven't. But that is—that was a succinct and rather fabulous pitch. <laughs> oh, I hung you out anyway. Um, goodness mm. me! No, you were—you were under two minutes there, Bernard. Fantastic! And wow, uh, oh, that's, uh, that's a pretty pretty solid start, I'd say, Paddy. How are you feeling?
3: Yeah, listen, I I will concede to my enemy, my competition here <laughs> that. Shakespeare may have been a better dramatist than Dunn <laughs> on the grounds that Dunn wrote no, bu- no plays whatsoever. But when it comes to poetry, there's just no matching it. I mean, Shakespeare's so sort of, sort of prissy-prissy. You know, he said this thing, ''Let us not to the marriage of true love admit impediments.'' Ridiculous. Whereas you get John Donne, he says, "For God's sake, hold your tongue and let me oh, love." These is three minutes. Yes, they are my three it, minutes. It, it started uh, it, yeah. exactly. You know, and, and so Shakespeare says, "Shall I compare thee to a summer's day?" John Donne says, "I wonder by my troth what thou and I did before we loved. Were we not wean till then, but sucked on country pleasures, childish?" I mean, that's a poet. So here is a man. If you don't love poetry, you should give up on life. Here is a man who has been a great poet, a passionate poet, but also a man of confliction. He started off as a Catholic, a very important, a very deeply believing Catholic. He ended up as the Dean of St Paul's, having shifted to Protestantism, and he wrote some absolutely outstanding um, sermons, and he wrote one poem which has been, and this is my final word, has been the motto of my life, and it goes like this. Upon a huge hill and steep, truth stands, and he who would find him about must and about must go... What a brilliant idea, that truth is something you cannot be delivered to, you must go out there and find it. And what that hill resisteth, wind so that in nice... I can't remember, but I could nearly do it. Um, I have about, I suppose, 30 of his poems, imperfectly, as you've now discovered in my head, this is a man to live a life by.
2: Wow. Another very short and brilliant pitch there, though. <laughs> you, both, you both took the uh, less is more route there, I think. Which I is think probably that's true. Which is quite the thing I love in John Donne, I mean, that, the
4: poem you began to quote, which I couldn't remember either, is that the greatest justification ever for when, you know, you, you fall in love and they accuse you of having had other girlfriends before, if yeah. not wives before. If ever any beauty I did see, mm. which I desired and got, t'was but a dream, dream of, of thee.
3: thee. <laughs> I mean, getting The other one I adore is, when he's lying in bed with his mistress and says, busy old fool, unruly son, yeah, why yeah. dost thou thus through curtains and through windows fall... Uh, peep, peep on us
4: I'm not going to disagree about John Donne I make
3: no, as a fan, poet I think he was outstanding but this unique thing I mean, his his sermons are great too mm. they really
2: are well this is this is very interesting and 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 the John Donne and
4: Donne undone
3: well my wife is a, <laughs> spells do double and she pretends it's done but it's not it's done and that's how we know it written up on he was he was he was put in the tower of London because he married without permission of the Queen and he wrote up on the note. He carved, it's still there to be seen, I think. He carved the, the little poem, John Dunn, and done. and was his wife, undone.
2: <laughs> <laughs> and that's still there, is it? Yeah. Still there. Oh, wow. Um, well, I, th- I think they both sound like fabulous books and this is always the dilemma I have when I get here, obviously, uh, looking you both in the face. Um, I am really intrigued, Bernard, by the Stephen Greenblatt book. I feel like I need to know a bit more about... This character Shakespeare, because we all, a lot of us know his plays, we know his work, but the actual man himself, I think, is is probably worth finding a little bit more about, and the time and where he came from. Um, we haven't had much poetry on the podcast before, Paddy, and I love that line. If if you don't love poetry, give up on life. I mean, I think I would actually write that out and stick it on my wall because you're quite right there, and it needs to be celebrated more. And I think people need to approach poetry a little bit differently in 2018 because it's it should be existing more it should be bigger than it is mm-hmm. and I think it's more relevant to today to what we're living through and there are some fabulous poets out there and have been that we haven't discovered so today based on those pictures and and based on the fact that I think poetry needs to be prevalent <laughs> I'm going to take yes. the I'm going to take the works of John Dumb, spelled D-O-N-N-E. <laughs> if you really love it,
4: there is a wonderful um, service offered by a man called Matthew Ogle, O-G-L-E,
3: mm.
2: and
4: I think it's called Poem A Day. I Ooh. subscribe. And for, quite for free, in your inbox every morning, in your email, a short poem will appear. Um, I, I learn
3: poetry because I just find it helps me. One of the best poems I have ever seen was written up. I don't know if you remember, travelling on the tube, they used to yes. have Poet of the Day. And there is a glorious poem. I don't know who the author is. I think it was called Anonymous, but I think it's one of the greatest poems. It, it goes, as, in the, as, in the, as on the tube before the train arrives, pushing the air in front of it, whirling the papers and make the plat- making the platform sing, making the platform jump and the rails sing, so it is always in my heart before I see you. Oh, Isn't that glorious? Yes. Really Isn't yes. You take the tube and <laughs> so it is always in my He's heart. He's a worthy but... winner. <laughs> I love that. And,
2: and Bernard, you, you didn't help the cause by saying how much you uh, liked John Donne as well, so it made me feel like you, know, you, were, you were probably behind the choice. It's okay, Joe, yes.
3: <laughs> thank you very much indeed.
2: Well, thank you both for joining me. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure, and uh, both the books are absolutely fantastic. Nine by Paddy Ashdown and War of the Wolf by Bernard Cornwell, both out now, published by HarperCollins. Gentlemen, thank you.
4: Thank you, Jay. Pleasure.
2: Thanks very much, indeed.